Hey, what's up? This is Chris Ryan. This is Jaden Concepcion. This is the podcast version of The Flat Circle, our True Detective after show. You can check out the video version on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Now you can check out the podcast. Let's get going. General rule, Chris. Everybody's lying. This is The Flat Circle. All right, I'm Chris Ryan. Here's my co-investigator, Jason Concepcion. Hello. We're here to take you through season three of True Detective. We're going to be asking a lot of different questions like who, what, when, where, why. That's how we're going to go through each episode. We're also going to talk about the context surrounding these episodes and some of the true crime cases that could be influencing Nick Pizzolatto's writing in the writing of season three. So let's just start with the what. Let's just give you guys the briefest of synopsises for what we just saw. It's 1980. And two kids, Will and Julie Purcell, have gone missing in Washington County, Arkansas. It's just a little bit south of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Two detectives, Wayne Hayes and Roland West, are assigned to the case, played by Mahershala Ali and Stephen Dorth, respectively. And after an exhaustive search, Hayes finds the dead body of Will Purcell in Devil's Den, which is in a state forest just south of Fayetteville. It's the trail leading up to Will's body is littered with pagan-looking, faceless bride dolls. Get them on Etsy now. It's the all surrounding surrounding his body, leading up to the trail to his body. These bride dolls are holding flowers. There are two other timelines, though. We have two other timelines. We have 1980. Then in 1990, Wayne Hayes is being deposed by state lawyers about the 1980 case. And he finds out in the course of this deposition that Julie Purcell's prints have shown up in a pharmacy robbery in Oklahoma. She's still alive. She's still alive. This obviously comes as a great shock to him. Mm -hmm. Then there is the third timeline which is 2015, and Hayes is being interviewed by a true crime TV show about the Purcells case. Called True Criminal. (laughs) (laughs) That's a too subtle a point on it. And he's also being talked to about his wife, Amelia, who we meet as a school teacher in the 1980 timeline, and in the 1990 timeline is working on a book, and in the 2015 timeline is considered this great author of, of true crime nonfiction. A landmark of true crime nonfiction. But is no longer with us. And... It's a, it's a well-regarded book, nonfiction book, but as we get to the end of the episode, mm-hmm. we find out that Julie Purcell is still alive and that in some ways, this case is still alive. That this case that has haunted this man throughout his life is still somehow growing and metastasizing and going in these different directions. It is classic True Detective. It is back to the season yep. one's perspective from the investigators. It involves missing children and it involves a growing sense of conspiracy around the missing children. Investigators investigating the investigators. That's right. And also, crucially, I think, we don't know if we can trust our narrator. Mm -hmm. So what's important to know is that in 2015, Wayne's starting to lose it a little bit. He is starting to lose it. The... uh one of the first things he says is in his deposition in, in 1990, excuse me, is 10 years is nothing, I remember everything. And one of the lawyers deposing him says, well, we can't know what you don't remember. You don't know you don't remember. <laughs> and I think that's uh, emblematic of what you see throughout this episode. Yeah. There are moments in Wayne's recollections where someone will say something in one of the future time, in the 2015 timeline that snaps him out of his recollection from 1980. But the, the world seemed to cross. The, the, the sound from 2015 reaches into his recollection and pulls him out of yeah. it from 1980. So you're left to wonder how much of this is what actually happened and how much of this is the addled recollections of a person who has problems remembering. Right, and even, even in between there, you start to see the narrator 
who was Wayne Hayes in 1990, right. pop up in the 1980 timeline, yeah. and the the guy in 2015, Wayne Hayes, popping up in 1990 and 1980. Just his memory inserting itself yes. into these different timelines. So basically what you have is time collapsing. Mm-hmm. You've got memory collapsing. You might say it's a flat circle. You might say that time is a flat circle. And these cases that sort of unite these timelines yeah. are never actually solved. I and mean, that's what Matthew McConaughey's Russ Cole says that's in right. season one. Nothing is ever solved. And this seems to be another example of one of those things. So let's talk a little bit while we're here talking about Wayne Hayes. Let's talk a little bit about some of the characters. Maybe. Yeah, so we've got Wayne, a former, well, in the 1980 timeline, detective and a former long-range reconnaissance scout, LERP, in Vietnam. By 1990, possibly retired, yeah. and has been called in to be deposed by state lawyers about his activities regarding the 1980 case. And by 2015, uh, is clearly diminished in, in a serious way. Has to record himself, essentially briefing himself on what is going on. What is the date? What are you doing? What are you doing today? You have memory problems. Yeah, he has this, uh, he's talking into a tape recorder and he tells himself at one point, remember the nightstand if you need it. Right. And, and the nightstand, this is what we see in the nightstand. It's a gun, nail clippers, what looks like a matchbook, some change. Not, nothing so spectacular, so your eyes immediately would suggest the gun is the most important thing in yeah. the nightstand. And another, we don't know why yet. Another thing he says in that, uh, on that tape recording is he's reminding himself that the TV true crime people are coming to interview him that day, and he says, you don't need any mistakes this late in the game. What is Wayne hiding? We're left to, we're left to wonder about that Yeah, for what now. could he be making a mistake about? His partner, Roland West, uh, also a detective, we don't know what he's up to in 1990 and 2015, uh, but we're, we're, we'll find out about that shortly. There's Tom Purcell, father of the missing children, his wife, Lucy Purcell. They are uh, estranged, yeah, to say, say the least. Yeah, he sleeps on the couch. <laughs> she says that everything he touches turns to shit. So they're, they're not having, like, it's not the, great. the nuclear family that they, they were dreaming of, probably. We soon find out that their uh, relationship was really uh, generated by the fact that they had kids. They didn't know each other that well. Then we have the uh, the three kids. Freddie Burns, Brian Peters, and another one as of yet unidentified, who were seen by multiple witnesses in the area, were known to hang out at the Devil's Den Park, lighting off fireworks, doing who knows what. A lot yeah. of strange things go on in that park. We'll find out the community has to... That's a com- common complaint the community has. There's Brett Woodard, trash man. Yeah who uh, is a, another Vietnam vet, came back to the country, had problems readjusting, and now essentially collects scraps to sell. Was seen in the area by multiple witnesses and is an obvious easy uh, suspect to turn to. Amelia, wife of Wayne Hayes uh, in the in future, yeah. by 1990, yeah. and a well-regarded author. And they meet in the 1980 timeline, as Wayne is beginning to investigate the disappearance of the Purcells, and she seems uh, almost as taken with the concept of this investigation yeah. as he does in the, media, in the media. She's reading this poem by Robert Penn Warren to her class about naming the world and talking about time. She seems to be a similar, uh, of similar intellect that, as, as Wayne. They're both outsiders in a lot of ways in this very, very small town, and we'll get into that uh, as we go on. Eliza Montgomery, who is uh, the 2015 timeline true crime interviewer, 
And Alan Jones, who is one of lawyers running the deposition in 1990, also a lawyer in 1980 in that town yeah. involved in that case. So that's our who's. Yeah, so we have like a, a, a cast of usual suspects, yeah. a cast of characters that you would find in a lot of different criminal shows. Cops, you know, ne'er-do-wells. And that's one of the things that you always have to kind of take into consideration when you're watching a show like True Detective is they're going to throw a lot of red herrings at you. Oh, yeah. So you're going to get a trash man who you might think initially, well, he's pretty creepy. He's driving around a go-kart full of garbage. And you're kind of like, okay, like that, that would seem like an obvious suspect. It's rarely the obvious suspect in True Detective. So let's talk a little bit about when and where. So like, let's give a little context for what we're talking about here. This is taking place in Fayetteville in 1980. Outside of Fayetteville, just outside of Fayetteville. And in 1980, Fayetteville's population, according to the U.S. Census, was 36,000. Wow. It takes place, the episode, first episode, is set, at least the 1980 timeline, uh, on the night that Steve McQueen died. Now, they mention that a couple of times, and yeah. I think they mention it partially because you tend to remember random things about nights, but when you do remember them, you fix them in your mind. Yeah. Steve McQueen's death was probably for guys like Wayne Hayes and Roland West. Big, a big deal. Yeah, it's like the, the twilight of a certain kind of American masculinity, maybe. Yeah. I think you could say, you know, these are guys grew up watching Steve McQueen movies like The Magnificent Seven and Bullet. Maybe that's even why they wanted to become cops in the first place. I know, place. Bullet makes you want to become a cop. And to have his passing, you know, see Wayne Hayes pours out a little bit of Miller High Life for him in the beginning of the episode. I do think it's significant in terms of, there's a feeling of maybe being unmoored from the past, right? Yeah. And that's actually what 1980 was. It was a turning of the page, not only in American history, but also American politics. Four days or three days before, the episode starts, Ronald Reagan won in a landslide presidential election over Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan, whose uh, second term will be marred by the fact that he's in the early stages of uh, Alzheimer's disease. And he himself also a symbol of American masculinity in yeah. some ways because of his cowboy past, because of the way he sort of was leading us into this bright and shiny American future and the, and the economic boom and bust times of the 80s. So we're seeing here that even the way they set this show, the settings, the when and where, hammers home the theme of this kind of great past dying away. Yeah. Things are fading. Yeah. Just the, by the fact that we're referenced of Ron Reagan and, and Steve McQueen, it builds this feeling like oh, things are changing maybe for the worse. And that was something that Reagan ran on. Yeah. Reagan ran on this idea of returning to a, like a... Morning in America. A morning, in, like an idea of America that people had in their head that was probably closer to the 1950s to white picket fences and safety and believing in community and believing in your yeah. church and having this kind of perfect nuclear family that you could raise and be, take part in the American dream. And really what you get is, like in Devil's Den, the stairway to nowhere, right? Like this is a myth. You're just going up into nothing. And what would happen over the course of the 80s and I think that the show is going to kind of hit on because you start to see it with the interview of one of these kids. You see one of these kids wearing a Black Sabbath t-shirt, as am I today. You start to see this kind of panic developing. That's right. What is that? Is that uh, that's Baphomet, yeah. <laughs> the demon goat? He's one of our one of our good homies. Yeah. You start to see this moral panic developing around things that kids are getting into youth culture, yeah. whether it's heavy metal, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons, whether it's the supposed avenues to Satanism. Right. And they're being blamed. These things are being blamed for society's ills. Another thing that happens in 1980 
right before the events that we see in the show. On November 1st, uh, the book Michelle Remembers was published. Michelle Remembers, written by uh, Canadian psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder, and ostensibly with and about his patient and eventual wife, Michelle Smith, became a bestseller, and is regarded as kicking off the satanic cult pedophile panic of the 1980s. Uh, In the book, Michelle uncovers memories that she claims were repressed about various uh, satanic rituals that she was involved in as a child that involved the murder of children and uh, various abuse acts. The book was thoroughly debunked, but it became a sensation. And they would tour the country giving talks about, giving talks to local law enforcement about, hey, here's the thing to look out for. Look out for teens wearing heavy metal t-shirts. That's part of it. Look out for uh, candles in the parks and strange things like that. That means there's rituals going on. And this was really an under-talked about undercurrent of 1980s and early 1990s culture in America. This panic that the teens are out there involved in something dark. Yeah. And I think that that's where you start to see things like... I'm sure that this existed beforehand, but Jason and I both grew up in the 80s. And you start to see... urban legends grow out of like cities and small towns where maybe there's not necessarily uh, corroborated information in newspapers or whatever, but it becomes things that get passed along between kids, between communities, between families that you're not supposed to go in this park. Don't make this left turn. Watch out for this place at night. Watch out for this guy. Nobody knows him. He lives alone. Like that kind of stuff would just sort of spread through communities. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia it's a big city, but there was still like all sorts of things like that. I remember uh, one of my friend's older brothers told me that ACDC stood for Antichrist Devils Children. Absolutely, yeah. Which I was like, oh my God. And then you hear ACDC for the first time, and you're like, well, it's not really satanic at all. What? Yeah, I mean, it's just such a fascinating time where even if you just looked at like the music that was released yeah. that year, you got everything from ACDC Hell's Bells to, uh, you know, The Cure starts putting out records. Yeah. You start hearing like goth records, you start hearing metal records, but then also there's still this like old fashioned Bob Seeger against the wind, Bruce Springsteen, The River, Billy Joel. Like there's still like the kind of singer songwriter classic rock based music that you hear from the past. So it's this collision of almost like a classic America with a new wider America that's darker. That's, and that's the thing that these people are all dealing with as they, as they head into this case. As this kind of like devil panic, which we, we think will really be uh, a theme in the show, uh, took hold over the 1980s, by the end of the 80s, people involved in this movement of studying these supposed satanic cults would claim that upwards of 50 and 60,000 people a year were killed by satanic cults in, in the United States of America. Yeah. That was a stat that they put out. I mean, that just to give you a, an idea of the kind of like unhinged fear that there was of certain kinds of imagery and music and just things that were not well understood by right-leaning culture that was ascendant at the time. Yeah, and I mean, that stuff was propagated by tabloids. It was propagated by shows like Geraldo eventually. You know, like these kinds of like tabloid television, tabloid journalism, but that kind of stuff can infect people's minds. Let's talk a little bit because we've been bringing up Michelle Remembers and we've talked a little bit about how this stuff was happening in the 80s. Let's talk about like some of the real crimes that may have influenced Pizzolatto's writing. Can you tell us a little bit about the West Memphis Three? So the West Memphis Three were uh, three kids accused of the murder and abuse of 
children were found in a wooded area and they were essentially keyed in on because they were outsiders in the town. They wore trench coats, they listened to heavy metal music. And they ended up doing significant time for this crime until they were released after several appeals and at least two documentaries about... Yeah, Paradise uh, Lost is one, yeah. About the fact that there's just very little evidence at all uh, to suggest that they did it beyond the fact that they looked strange to the powers that be in this town. Yeah, I mean, and then you start to get into... That that speaks to the, the satanic panic going around yeah. at the time. Now, that was a little bit later, but there's... It's, it's hard to imagine that Nick Pizzolatto and Jeremy Sonia, who directed this episode, cast these guys by accident, yeah, put them in t-shirts with Black totally. Sabbath on them by accident, had them listening to punk rock in their car. They were listening to X, I think, in the car. Yeah. And then they were listening to the Stooges later when they're hanging out at Devil's Den. They become persons of interest because of their cultural leanings and because they are like generally anti-intellectual bullies right. around this school. So again, like the trash man, they seem almost too obvious to really look at, but as we saw with West Memphis 3, anything that can explain unspeakable horror right. is something that people will grab onto. And if it's Satan, if it's heavy metal, or whatever it is, they'll, t- they'll take it. One of the things that we've really, uh, Chris and I have really been talking about since we've been researching this stuff is like what a strong undercurrent in American culture this kind of energy is. This, ki- uh, this constant search for a dark force that is infecting the culture, that is doing strange rituals and abusing kids right before our eyes. Uh, stuff like QAnon and, and uh, the Pizzagate, yeah. like, that's not really new. Yeah. This stuff has been happening. This is part of American culture. It's almost weirdly comforting. Yeah, the, to, <laughs> to, to understand that this, that this like, is not a new thing. This yeah. is not a strange thing that just happened. Uh, okay, there's another thing I want to talk to you guys a little bit about in terms of it being a... Uh, a true crime that we might want to keep our eye on. And that is the case of James Dallas Egbert. Now, James Dallas Egbert was a guy who disappeared in 1979. Uh, he was a, a young kid. I don't, you know, like, he, he was at college really young. So mm-hmm. he was at Michigan State, and he entered Michigan State when he was 14. And in 19, when he was 16, in 1979, he disappeared from Michigan State. Um, and they c- couldn't find him, and the family hired a uh, sort of sensationalistic private detective, the kind of guy who n- in today's day would go on Nancy Grace to talk about the case that he was working <laughs> on. Um, and this guy basically developed a theory that James Dallas Egbert had lost himself right. to Dungeons and & Dragons, and that he had disappeared underneath uh, into the sewers and, and steam rooms of where the steam pipes were of Michigan State, underneath Michigan State, to play an almost real-life version of Dungeons & Dragons. And he even referred to him as the Dungeon Master. James Dallas Egbert Egbert pops up months later, gets in contact with this private detective, talks to him about about some of the problems that he was dealing with in his life, personal problems that had way more to do with emotional distress than had anything to do with some multi-sided die game that he was playing and would go on to actually uh, commit suicide, tragically. The reason I'm bringing this up is because when they go into, when Hayes and West go into Will Purcell's room, when they're first investigating the case, they go and they look through a couple of books, and they, Wayne goes up to this table, and you can see he's got a scout, Will's got a scout handbook there, but then below that, 
is a Dungeons and Dragons guidebook. Dun, dun, dun. A Dungeons and Dragons guidebook called The Forest of Ling. Yeah. L-E-N-G. So we were looking around, we were like, what's The Forest of Ling? Was that like an actual Dungeons and Dragons module? By all accounts, it's not. It's one that was made up for True Detective. Okay. Lang, though. What's a Lang? What's Lang? Lang is a word you find in the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. It is the name of a arid, I guess, or like a it's a it's a plateau basically. It's a, an overhang, a plateau. Yeah. It's a, an arid, remote location. And in H.P. Lovecraft's fiction, it shows up first in a story in 1920. And the story in 1920, a character comes across a priest who's, wor- who's, who's alone in a monastery in this lang, and the priest cannot be described except that it has no face and just a yellow silk mask. <laughs> this same, yellow king back! This same priest shows up in Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath in 1926, yeah. where a lang is patrolled by a high priest not to be described. And the last line of the Robert Penn Warren poem that Amelia is reading in the 1980 sequence, she says, the name of this story will be time, but you must not pronounce its name. So we get into this idea that you can't quite describe what you're seeing. This goes back to True Detective season one. This goes back to when you're shown almost the truth about reality, your mind can't process it. It drives you to a kind of madness. And this is what Wayne is going through now if you want to look at it through that lens. Wayne is trying to think back on his memories that he is presenting to the world as absolutely nailed down. I remember this stuff. But in reality, he has a lot of problems understanding what happened yeah, to him. Yeah, what was real and what, what was wasn't re- real. Yeah, and that is actually, this idea of madness is a major theme in the fiction of Lovecraft, in the fiction of Ambrose Bierce from the 19th century, and Robert Chambers, yep. which is a huge influence not only on Lovecraft, but on Nick Pizzolatto and his writing. Mostly these guys are, I mean, loosely you could call them horror writers, but what they're really writing about is madness. And right. it's writing about unspeakable things that you see out in the world or in other dimensions that you can't quite process and you can't quite talk about. It's about how language fails to describe yeah. some of the evil you can find in the universe. There is some thought that this priest that shows up in Lovecraft could be a mythological figure that shows up in a lot of this fiction called Haster, H-A-S-T-U-R, right? Haster first pops up in the work of the 19th century writer Ambrose Bierce, who was the writer of Incident at Owl Creek. Great short story. He was a huge influence on Lovecraft, and he also wrote in a story called The Inhabitant of Carcosa. Carcosa! Pastor also appears in Robert Chambers' metafictional play, The King in Yellow, which Uh-oh. is a huge influence on Nick Pizzolatto. Here we go. In the writing of True, season one of True Detective. And obviously, The King in Yellow, The Yellow King, is a major factor in True Detective season one. In The King in Yellow, Carcosa is, is also, you know, it's only viewed in the past by someone who used to live there, much like how Hayes right. is viewing Fayetteville in season three of True Detective episode one. And also, his name is Hayes. Purple haze. He's in a haze. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing stuff from Nick Pizzolatto. The extended Pizzolatto universe unfolding before That's our eyes. That's what we're talking about. Yes. We wanted to know whether or not season three would come back and touch on season one. Whether all of these crimes were taking place on the same timeline, in the same world. Mm-hmm. Season one of True Detective 
largely takes place in 1995. At least that's when Russ Cole and Martin Starr start working right. together. But there are crimes that they investigate that took place in 1990. That's right. And we also will have 19, you know, we have 1990 stuff, we have 2015 stuff. There are similarities between some of the suggestions of child disappearances. Yes. When we see Will Purcell's body, first, hands posed in prayer. His hands are posed in prayer. Exactly as Dora Lang's were when she was found under the prostrate uh, in, in the front sh- of the tree. There's some kind of religious connection between these bodies. So we're going to keep our eye on how these things are connected, how season one and season three are connected. I'm hard pressed to imagine how season two could also be a part of this, but there is too much going on in yeah. terms of the closest of the location. Yes. I think Fayetteville is something like 900 miles from where in Louisiana, everything took place. Mm-hmm. We're too close in time. We're too close in the idea of missing children being posed in these sort of pseudo-religious uh, like st- stances when their bodies are found. And we still have Julie Purcell out there. I can't wait to, to con- find out more. <laughs> I gotta tell you. <laughs> so we're pretty excited. We're yeah. pretty excited to guide you guys along uh, for the next few weeks with True Detective Season 3. I'm Chris Ryan. This is Jason Concepcion. We'll be back in just a few to talk about Episode 2 of True Detective Season 3. See you in Carcosa. Carcosa.